to Speaking of the Arts. What a year this has been. At a time when live music is needed more than ever, we've had to put it on hold and watch musicians perform almost exclusively on our screens. There is some good news, though, as we wrap up 2020. Through the tireless efforts of NEVA, which is the National Independent Venue Association, and NITO, the National Independent Talent Organization, as well as several other arts organizations, our community has rallied together and we just witnessed the passing of the Save Our Stages Act. The bill provides $15 billion in direct funding to venues, agencies, and other arts organizations and is a much needed lifeline at this point in time. You can visit saveourstages.com for more information on how this might apply to you. Thank you to everyone who took the time to write their congressmen and women these past several months. It truly paid off. Today's episode continues our discussion on best practices for live streaming. My guests are Nicholas Milos and Chad Hillegas. Nicholas is currently the general manager of the Luckman Fine Arts Complex in Los Angeles, where he oversees production of all of their live music events. Chad is currently the executive and artistic director of Performance Santa Fe. Our conversation goes in-depth into how each organization has had to pivot to both producing live streaming events and also producing new content to serve as future virtual events. We talk about what is working and not working for them, how to think about exclusivity in the world of streaming, whether or not streaming has a place in the future once we can do events in person again, and what new opportunities might arise as a result of the new Save Our Stages Act. Before we begin the episode, I want to thank all of our listeners, and I want to wish everyone a happy new year. Here's to 2021. Stay safe and take care. Okay, Nicholas, Chad, thank you guys so much for being on the show on Speaking of the Arts. Uh, We're just a few days away from Christmas during the holidays, and I want to thank you both for taking time out of your schedules to have this conversation as we get ready to wrap up the new year. So why don't we just kind of dive right in and um, actually, you know what, before we do that, uh, why don't you guys just take a minute to each introduce yourselves and tell us where you're calling from and then we can get into our conversation. So Nicholas, where where are you today? Um, uh, well, I'm Nicholas Mestas. Um, right now I'm in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, but I don't usually uh, live here. Um, I'm the general manager at the Luckman Fine Arts Complex, which is uh, at Cal State LA in Los Angeles. And um, yeah, I just happen to be in Pueblo right now. Uh, fortunate enough to be here, I guess it's beautiful. <laughs> nice. How about you, Chad? Uh, Chad Hilligus, Executive and Artistic Director of Performance Santa Fe. Uh, the major difference between uh, Nicholas and I is that while Nicholas uh, owns and operates a venue, uh, we do not. Um, our organization rents about seven to eight different spaces around the Santa Fe and Northern New Mexico region um, each year to present our performances. Great. So um, today's topic is on live streaming and you guys both have experience doing this from the past 12 months, probably even longer if I had to guess. And I love that you're each approaching it slightly differently by nature of Chad, as you pointed out, what you have to work with essentially. And so I really hope that you guys will take the reins here on this and offer your perspectives and what you found to be effective as you've done live streaming for your patrons. So maybe to start, why don't you each just take a turn and give an example or two of something you've done this year that uh, constitutes live streaming and how you approached it 
and what you might have done specifically to make it viable, both for your organization and for the artists or artists that were involved. Nicholas, why don't you go first? Um, sure. So one of the things that we did initially, um, once the sort of lockdown happened, was we went into really high gear of uh, creating, well, sort of cataloging existing content that we had, uh, exhausting uh, that, those resources, and then going really into creating new content. Uh, we created a series called, uh, which is called the Virtual Experience um, Series. And it's basically a mix of performance and interviews with um, artists um, of different uh, uh, sort of, well, it's, it's, been all, it's all been music and dance so far, but we're working on other avenues. Um, and it's been, it's been a, a great um, project so far. We've gotten a lot of great um, feedback. We've learned a lot. We've had a lot of you know, hurdles and stuff and how to make it viable, how to make it work, and then working a around and with the uh, guidelines that are seem to change every day in LA and the other places that we filmed. Um, I also got creative with our partnerships and to make them really happen. Um, so uh, uh, one example is we worked with a local artist in LA uh, who's doing, making, uh, doing very well for herself named Sancha. And we filmed that at the Luckman um, very, very early on uh, when we were still allowed to. And um, it's, it did really, really well. And we used that as like a template to build and, sh and share with other agents and artists. And eventually, I mean, the last one that premiered was Leela Downs that we shot in her house in Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, so we, I went to Oaxaca, we had a small crew that was there. We had, you know, with very strict sort of guidelines that were in place, not only by us, but, you know, we were entering her house. Um, and sort of worked within those kind of cumbersome but obviously necessary um, confines to uh, get to where the project has gotten. Um, and that one has been, uh, we, we don't have paywalls up or on anything actually. We just ask uh, if you, you know, if you're enjoying the, the presentation, you're invited to donate if you want. And uh, increasingly people are doing so. Um, and we've gotten a couple, like some write-ups in the LA Times and other, and other things as well, just mentions about things happening that have really catapulted our viewership. I think the, the last time I checked our Leela Downs one was a little under 30,000 views, which is pretty huge um, considering. We, did, we also filmed a one with, with Wicca from Spain in Miami. And that one, um, that was kind of our first big one that, um, and you know, at, at this point, uh, with that one, we were at about 18,000. And so the, the numbers are increasing as, as people find out about it um, on a per day, a post premiere uh, basis, uh, pretty sort of significantly. So that's exciting. Um, but uh, again, well, I guess we'll talk about this later, the viability of it in terms of finances is uh, solely based on the hope that people will contribute and, um, and you know, using some of our existing trade partnership that we had carried over from last year that we didn't use. We, I mean, we've kind of exhausted those at this point, but, um, and also other, other, you know, creative ways of making things happen. I was able to get my, my flight covered, for instance, via a family connection with an airline and things like that, that I wouldn't normally uh, even think about needing to do, but it's been great. And it's made, made everything very, very uh, possible um, because of the sort of slim pickings of resources that we are, 
that everyone is is uh, faced with right now. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you kind of alluded to this, but the examples that you gave, those were not streamed live. They were recorded and then yeah, we did. offered as an event post-production. Yes, exactly. So those ones we did, we did, we have done a couple live streams, but they're pre-recorded live, basically. So we, it's, it's as if it was on TV. We use a, um, I think it's called Restream. Uh, it's like a plugin with their Vimeo platform that we use. But like it starts at, we did this with ABT, for instance, um, that we did not create that content. It was existing sort of content that was pieced together. And it started at 8 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Pacific, but you couldn't rewind, you couldn't fast forward. It was as if it were like on television and happening live. And that was basically, we need to do that in with the non-original content because of licensing stuff and with the um, songs that are played and things like that that um, I guess we, it's just, you know, it's just part of the agreement with the, with the owners of the song specifically. It, it's less to do with, uh, funny enough, like the company that is performing on stage and more to do with the music that they're listening, I mean, that they're playing, uh, dancing to. Gotcha. Chad, what about you? What have you guys done this year that you found to be effective or what have you guys learned from doing this this year? Yeah. Uh, so we actually uh, had never done any live streaming uh, content before uh, probably midsummer. In fact, our first venture into this was uh, when we pivoted our major fundraiser of the year, our annual gala, to a virtual uh, format in mid-July. So that was, that was our first entree into this, if you will. Um, and it was new for a lot of our patrons. Um, I think the the demographics are, are significantly different between Santa Fe and Los Angeles, for instance, uh, especially on a university campus. And the the tech savvy, the comfort level, if you will, with the patrons is is very different. Uh, so it required a lot of of communication and and uh, technology education for our patrons. Um, but it also uh, what we've done since then has allowed us to develop an entirely new audience, which is fantastic. Um, and what we've seen since July, for instance, is um, a, a much uh, savvier, uh, much savvier audience now. Um, but with that comes higher expectations from the audience. Um, you know, in, in early, early on, you know, in July, people were just grateful that we were trying anything. Um, and they were pretty forgiving if things went wrong. Um, now, nine months into this, people are a whole lot less forgiving, and we've had to step up our quality and step up um, the, the level of, of audience service that we provide, um, set, you know, revamp certain areas of our website and uh, build completely new embedded uh, forms and uh, FAQ pages on our website. So that's been an additional cost. You know, it, we've, we've really invested time, money, and energy into, into educating our audiences so that um, while we can build new audiences, we aren't leaving our existing audience behind. Um, so all that being said, um, what we did, what we decided to do after the success of the gala, and let me just say, just to give you some numbers here, um, our our typical, a typical live in-person gala for us, um, we see probably maximum 200 people uh, in attendance for that. Um, for our virtual gala, 
Um, we used uh, live stream. It was a pre-produced, uh, pre-produced concert that we basically did a what what Nicholas is referring to as um, you know a simulated simulated live event. Um, you know that you load up into the studio program through livestream.com and you know hit play and hope that your internet bandwidth uh, uh, stays strong through throughout the remainder of it. But um, we had for the virtual gala, we had 2000 uh, viewers from 14 different countries. Um, so it really, the silver lining in all of this and Nicholas will most definitely agree is um, the broadening of our audience and the broadening of our donor base um, outside of our local, uh, local area and our local impact um, has been pretty incredible. Um, we launched a, a new digital concert season um, in August, uh, and so far we have presented 17 uh, live stream simulated live events. Uh, but we are a presenting organization. We don't we don't have our own venue. Uh, so with the exception of of this the gala that I mentioned in July and our recent Christmas at the Cathedral, this venue behind me is one of our seven to eight venues each year that we typically present performances in. Um, other than those two uh, benefit concerts, um, we have completely relied on pre-produced content, existing content um, from artists and agents. We have not ventured into uh, producing or creating new content. Um, the, what we decided to do with PSF at Home, which is our digital concert season platform, um, is, is allow that as, or, or basically market that as a free benefit that is exclusive to our annual fund members. Um, so it is free content, but you do have to become a member of the organization in order to access, uh, access that content. Um, that membership comes with a, a whole onslaught of additional benefits. Um, and then we've just added this. What, that, what we've seen is you know, while we may not have the viewership that Nicholas is is quoting, um, what we've seen is that our it has built our annual fund by two hundred and thirty percent over the last six months. Um, these are people that now are in our system that we can cultivate as donors and build those relationships um, once they once they become a member. Um, and that's been that's been not only lucrative for us, but also um, allowed us to grow at a pace that we're comfortable with. We're a very small organization uh, with a staff of six. Um, so uh, we're, we're very happy with, with the outcome. Um, this latest Christmas at the Cathedral concert, for instance, we had uh, 1,800 viewers from 10 different countries. We had 350 uh, individual donations um, and it blew our fundraising goal out of the water uh, with that. Um, you know, we, we increased our fundraising goal by 250% from what we set out to set out to raise. Um, and I, I believe that um, the most important thing that any of us can do during this last, this last nine months and moving forward until we're back to some sense of normalcy is remain present remain visible um, and think of new ways to um, 
justify your existence as an as a performing arts organization. Um, and if anybody can do that, it's it's us in the creative industry. And it's ex it's been exciting to see what organizations like uh, like Nicholas's uh, and others around the country um, have come up with. Um, because there is no, you know, we've heard, uh, we've all been um, uh, exhausted by this phrase, you know, there is no playbook for this. Um, yeah. uh, and so we're all coming up with our own ways of serving, serving our base. And that's exciting. Can I just ask a specific question on the examples you gave of the, of the events that you've done? What is the actual window for viewing them? For example, is it, we're doing this, I understand that it was pre-recorded, but do I only have one opportunity to watch it uh, at a certain time or does it exist for 24 hours or how does that work um, with each event that you've been doing virtually? Uh, for ours, it varies. Um, it varies on, you know, each contract is different. Each agreement with the agent and the artist is different. Some have been for, uh, some have only allowed us to live stream for that, you know, 75 minute period. Uh, others have allowed us to make it available for 24 hours. Others, um, once we once we got hip to the notion that if we if we positioned the content to serve our educational programs as well um, and offer that to our students and um, uh, school administrators and and teachers, then agents and artists were more likely to allow us to extend the period to a full five days um, of that being of that being available but understanding that we're not making any of this content public um, so so everything we do is behind a, a free paid wall if you will um, and those links are then shared with qualifying members or educators. That's a good segue into the next question for both of you, which is how do you, how does exclusivity factor into all this? Because, you know, for my own agency, I've got a few artists who have been very consistent with the streaming that they're doing, like producing their own show once a week, for example. And then when a presenter is interested in working with that artist, we have a conversation that has to happen, which is, well, is your artist willing to take a break from their weekly live stream? to work with us to produce something um, new for our, for our patrons. And so, I'm, so just to keep the question simple, I'm just wondering, you know, how do you guys approach exclusivity with live streaming or with, with streaming these events? That's been, exclusivity has been, uh, especially, uh, well, specifically with the content that we are, I guess, licensing from agencies. Um, it's been the sort of the, the, big elephant in the room. I think that is, we all have a lot of questions about how it's gonna work with, even with things, especially with things that are gonna be ticketed um, in the future that, that we're looking at. Um, how is it possible? Well, for instance, uh, if we're showing something online and somebody in Seattle showing it and someone's in New York showing it, what's stopping somebody from watching it before ours? You know, it's almost like, it's, if it's online, it doesn't matter where you are. Then the second issue is about the cost of, like we all have to be on the same page with, with the price, because how, how, why would one thing cost, you know, it just, there's a lot of little tiny things that are actually really big things that make it a little bit, uh, it, 
difficult to sort of create a standard for it. And I'm talking about the, at this point exclusivity with uh, in the artist and the, and the venue. Um, and I don't know if we've really figured out how we're going to do that because I, I know for I know that we have one show that's going to happen in the spring that is going to be ticketed, and I know that like four other venues in the U.S. at least have have purchased uh, that. I know that we're doing a Ballet Folklorico de Mexico show in March with the same thing. I don't know how that's going to uh, work yet. We're still figuring it out, but I think it's going to require a lot of talking with our peers that are also in, at, at other venues who are presenting the same things to make sure that we're not stepping on anyone's toes uh, because we've all sort of left our little, our little ponds and now we're all like sharing the same pond. It's a little, um, it makes us think a lot about <laughs> solutions, but I don't know if we've actually arrived at one that makes the most sense for us because we do know that people are watching our content that are not even near anywhere near us although we you know we send everything out via our newsletters and stuff but you know the artists will share it and then we'll have a bunch of people in mexico watching it or a bunch of people in france or spain or wherever and then all over the u.s as well um so it it kind of um our net is a lot bigger than it was uh when we had um live shows and even talking to agents, I think they are wondering the same thing. I, I, I've had a lot of conversations recently with agents where they're asking me questions that I would normally be asking them about how, like, how we're going to make it. Like, you know, they're, it's kind of like a, we're working together to figure out how this would work for everyone. I've been talking to agents more than I've ever needed to really, um, trying to just figure out how this, how this uh, is going to happen. Because we didn't have even like boilerplate a contract language for these types of things about how you know we don't really it's not really presenting and it goes into a lot of other things even with uh, besides this things like state taxes do they pay state taxes not really performing like in the state but we're issuing all of these questions that we've never had to to confront are being brought up um so yeah i, I think it's just um we're, we're sort of learning as, as we go along but um and it, there's a lot of discussions on these you know groups email things and but yeah it's a uh, I don't know is I guess is that my long answer to that is I don't really know how it's going to work in that case um but we'll figure it out <laughs> yeah Chad how have you guys been approaching that um for me exclusivity uh is not an issue once we get outside of the state of New Mexico um so if you know for instance, we launched with an eight-part series in partnership with uh, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. And that was the first, you know, our first um, uh, programming entree into for, for PSF at Home. Um, and it was incredibly successful. It was all existing content that um, Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center had already shown and presented to their base, which is much, much larger and more national than our base here locally. Um, but, you know, as long as there was not another presenting organization within the state of New Mexico presenting that content, um, I don't care if somebody, I don't care if a presenter in Colorado is presenting that same content um, because my focus is um, the people who are following what we do. Um, and, and the people who are following our brand. And then the people that we're reaching 
in, you know, uh, in other states or other countries are finding us um, through our paid social media campaigns uh, that are targeted uh, to those audiences. So I'm fine with somebody, I guess I don't have any issue with somebody, you know, um, finding our Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center content and going to CMS's website and making a donation to Lincoln Center because um, you know we're we are all in this together and um, you know I think it's fantastic if if they uh, find additional support but the fact remains that we are the ones uh, continuing uh, to present that content that exists um, so I think people I think our local audiences are quite grateful and appreciative of, of the fact that um, people like Nicholas and myself are taking time to um, you know, curate a, a, a season for them to be able to go online and not have to search for qu high quality content. We're doing that for them. Um, it's, this, you know, it's, it's similar, um, it's comparable to what we do for a live season. Um, so yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really have an exclusivity, but chip on my shoulder, I guess. Do you think though that agents do? Like, are you getting questions from from agents about other venues? I guess not so much them, uh, with the concern that um, a smaller venue, for instance, might be hesitant to do something if a bigger venue is going to do the same thing because they're going to have you know a louder presence and thus attract probably even their audience beforehand. Um, yeah, um, yes, uh, I've had that conversation with, uh, uh, with agents. Um, it, hasn't, it hasn't been an issue thus far. I mean, for, we, we, for ins a, a good example, uh, one of our most recent um, presentations was a Jeremy Dank recital, a uh, piano recital that he specifically was commissioned to produce and record for the celebrity series of Boston, um, which is, you know, a slightly slightly larger organization, um, but very similar business model to Performance Santa Fe. Um, and really, all it was just a matter of the agent reaching out to the original producer of the content, being Celebrity Series, and saying, "What what do you want? Can we can we give?" Performance Santa Fe permission to present this concert. And to their credit, at Boston, at Celebrity Series, they, um, you know, they said sort of something similar is, you know, the only thing that matters to them is that the artist, that, that this content lives past just this one presentation. Um, because this is, this is the livelihood for so many artists right now, is creating, creating this digital content. Um, and instead of, um, you know, instead of Jeremy Dank being hired by 20 different organizations to record uh, 20 different recitals, um, you know, why can't we all just present the same, the same recital um, at our own time to our, to our own patron base? I would imagine that it's probably a little trickier for you, Nicholas, just because you're in a larger you're in a larger, um, you, you, have, you have so many uh, presenting and performing arts organizations within the LA area that you're competing with. 
yeah, the, the market is very saturated and that it's always been an issue just you know, even with live shows and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I think that the challenges that we face being in a city with so many venues and especially in a, even um, in an area of the city that is changing a lot and there's more and more um, cultural activity happening um, closer and closer to us. Um, uh, that that has even come up that you know a, a venue that's 20 minutes away and in LA it's one of those things where like if you live on the east side you're not going to go to the west side and vice versa because even though it's 12 miles it could be three hours in your car depending but this you know that's not an issue now and it's it is weird if we because this came up recently where um another venue in LA wanted to uh I think it was Ballet Folklorico as well um like this, like the weekend after, and I, I already know that we have the same exact media partners. We have the same exact like radio stations, and I was just imagining like you're gonna hear our our ads and their ads at the same time. You're gonna see our ads in LA Weekly and LA Times at the same time. It's gonna look weird, um, and that would be something that would absolutely never happen because of exclusivity clauses in the traditional context. Um, but yeah, it's 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 uh, definitely it hasn't been an issue, but it's 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 been uh, addressed a little bit uh, or noticed, I would say, because of this new way of working. Yeah, and I think that's, I, I, I think that we're, um, we're kind of saying the same thing. And that is that um, as long as it's, as long as it, we have exclusivity within our market, um, mm -hmm. within our, you know, our immediate market reach. So I'm kind of keeping it the same as if it were a live performance, you know, so that 60 to 75, yeah. our, our, our exclusivity clause is probably larger than yours is, but, um, you know, 60, 75 mile radius, um, you know, the, our, our social media uh, ads or our printed ads are not going to conflict. Our sponsors are not going to conflict mm -hmm. if they're out of our market. Um, and, you know, ABT is a good example. You know, um, we are also considering uh, perhaps in the spring, um, I would assume uh, presenting the same program from ABT that, that you all presented, um, uh, you know, and I, do, I don't think there's any reason why that can't happen uh, because mm -hmm. the people that follow Performance Santa Fe are not following your venue and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I think the distinction too uh, is always, is it a live event only existing for those 75 minutes virtually, or is it pre-existing content that will be up for a certain amount of time? Because it's two completely different worlds, right? And, I, and from what I observed at the beginning of the pandemic, by far and away, the majority of things were live events in the moment, and, and you can only watch it when it's happening. And then people, the evolution starts in such a short time was people realized right away, quality is so important and it's not gonna cut it if it's bad audio or bad um, visual, right? So I think that also started steering a lot of artists and organizations to push for pre-recorded stuff that has an opportunity to be fine-tuned and then taking that content and putting it out as the event, if you will. And then that kind of brings us up to what you guys are talking about, which is um, who has the right to that event and where do you get into conflicts and stuff. And 
I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but my assumption is that when we're talking about pre-existing recorded content, the artist, assuming that they own it, would be licensing it to anybody who wants to use it within a very specific set of terms. And where my understanding, and you know, that's relatively straightforward. My understanding of the complication is actually it has to do with the um, performance royalties, the artist royalties, the songwriter royalties, the sync licensing, like you know, all of the licenses. And I had a conversation three or four months ago with a pretty prominent music attorney. And I was asking these questions because this started to come up a lot, which was if an organization wants to uh, do an event and it's going to exist online for any amount of time, how do you do uh, royalties for it? And his answer was kind of interesting, which was basically, we're still trying to figure that out <laughs> um, because it's very specific. Like, are, you know, is the artist doing a cover song? Is it their own song? Is it, you know, all of these things? Um, which have to be taken into consideration. And then the question is like, who's actually paying the royalties? Is it YouTube paying sort of like a blanket uh, royalty to the, to the uh, rights agencies? Is it uh, the organization that presented them? You know, is it the, it, it's really complicated. Yeah. And so, um, I don't, I mean, we could probably talk about it, you know, indefinitely, but um, I do hope that any existing content that is still up that was made exclusively for an event comes back to the artist in some form or fashion, or they were wise enough to either themselves or their agent or their lawyer, put it into the agreement that, you know, these royalties do have to be accounted for at some point. Because, no, you know, a lot of us don't have experience with that in the live world. It's another thing we've all had to adjust to. Right. Um, yeah, so- Neither of us want to say anything about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> but it, it, it is a topic of discussion that is pretty regular uh, with the California uh, presenting world. I know that people were just kind of doing crash courses on sync licensing like two weeks ago. <laughs> there was like, I checked my email and there was like a thing with 150 back and forth asking yeah. all of these questions. And it actually came up right around the time, it was more, it was like two months ago, right around the time that we had our ABT uh, stream. Um, and we, the big hiccup on that was a Philip Glass piece that was in briefly in the in the stream that was kind of the the hurdle the 300 foot hurdle that um we had to figure out because it wasn't part of you know certain um portfolio of life in the li licensing and the licenses that we had um but yeah it's uh, it's been interesting to say the least yeah what do you guys think about in sort of whatever the post pandemic environment is going to look like, meaning when we can do live events again with people, do you think live streaming will still make sense to do? Whether it's pre-existing content or it's live streamed events? What do you I think, think we learned we learned from this that that the original content that we're creating um, is something that we will con I think continue to do because um, it's very engaging. It's something that, um, that and then we, we will kind of, our hope is to kind of work it into, and we kind of do have this worked into our existing contracts already where we get a little bit of time with the artist. So sort of, sort of we'll just convert it to like a backstage type of thing that we used to do in the past more so. Um, so I, I do think that we'll have like post live show digital content that won't necessarily be the performance, but might be like, a snippet or a sound check or something. I remember we had years ago a Trey McIntyre project 
and we did a video thing of the uh, dancers prepping their shoes with like, you know, kind of scuffing them, the whole ritual that goes into um, prepping point uh, slippers that was really engaging. And that was through our, at the time, called Education and Outreach Department, which is now called Luckman Plus. And um, so, yeah, it's been uh, uh, that sort of content, I think, would, will continue to live. Our executive director, Wendy Baker, who has been really uh, you know, sort of a champion for, for all of these efforts and has her, her sort of um, know-how and her passion for, for continuing to have a presence, but also continuing to deliver uh, our content to people, I think has only grown with all of this. And, and she's really allowed us to, to um, get this original content, a uh, digital series to where, where it is now and where hopefully it will grow. And I, I don't think that we would take a step back and stop doing it, especially if we're gonna have the artists already already coming. And it's just another way to, you know, uh, from a marketing point of view, it's a great tool to have the artists uh, captured in video in our venue, because our, our venue is kind of distinct looking. It has, you could tell when something's at the Luckman, especially backstage or outside of the venue, we have all of these pillars that are very, um, very uh, unique to us. So it looks, you know, striking uh and yeah well i think we'll continue to do it as long as we can afford to do it <laughs> yeah what about you guys chad um i think we will continue to present and offer pre-existing content through our education programs um we're currently looking at uh we're part of a of a presenting consortium i guess producing consortium in this in this matter this uh, in this case uh, with jazz reach um, who does a lot of, of education work um, uh, championing the, the history and performance of jazz they're they're creating a new 13 part educational ser digital series um, that we're going to be offering and I think that that's something like that is perhaps, uh, something that we can continue to offer year after year uh, to school districts across the state. Um, as far as live streaming, um, again, it goes back to the whether or not technology can keep up with the quality expectations of our audience. Um, I think that for a while, uh, we're all going to have to explore um, a hybrid model um, where we have a, a limited capacity um, live performance, but then we have another tiered ticket price for a live stream. But a couple of things have to happen before we can offer that. And it means um, that a lot of these venues that we rent are going to have to spend some money to upgrade their current um, uh, video equipment. Um, you know, one of our venues, one of our largest venues here uh, is, is an older historic theater. Uh, they have a single shot camera at the back of their mezzanine level, um, not super high HD quality, um, that, that is historically only used for archive purposes. Um, that's not something that I feel I can, um, I can offer to our patrons as an option until it becomes, uh, until the quality uh, is significantly improved. Um, and, and then we have other venues that don't have anything like that in place. 
so it would require a whole other cost, whole other expense of bringing in a film crew, uh, production crew to live stream a performance in some of these venues, like, like for instance, the, the cathedral behind me. So um, I, th I think that is coming, um, but there, there are a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of improvements on the technology side that, that would need to happen. That's a good segue to one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about. So this week, uh, to, I'll just date our conversation. Today's Wednesday and Monday, we, the whole nation, whether you work in the arts or not, was excited because we thought this really much needed stimulus package was gonna be passed and you know who has held it up. I'm bringing it up because within the stimulus package for the first time since I've been alive is a special bill for the arts industry providing $15 billion of funding. That makes things look a lot more optimistic for next year, assuming it gets passed. Yeah. <laughs> and Chad, just hearing you talk about, will we do live stream again or won't we? And one of the main hurdles being, can technology keep up with it? And can your organization come up to speed with the technology that's needed? I can't help but think, assuming that funding gets passed, maybe that's something that we might see organizations take advantage of you know, provided they can get back on their feet with the funding, maybe they will invest in this equipment and maybe we will see a continuation of live streaming as we move back to live performances. I mean, who knows, but um, it's a lot of money that I have to think is gonna open up a lot of exciting possibilities. I mean, have either of you, the news is so new, have either of you had a chance to think about what might be possible um, with whatever your, or your respective organizations are able to get from the funding? and what that might look like. Um, it's kind of an open-ended question. I think for us, it would definitely go into uh, uh, technology to make, uh, not necessarily live stream, but all um, sort of, um, you know, just filming in general, I think possible. We, we're having, we've had to rent a lot of equipment um, because the lenses are, you know, we don't own, we, we've, never, we've never needed it. So, and uh, I think that's, absolutely where we would um, put some of that funding if we were fortunate enough to receive any of it. Um, because it would, I mean, it would change a lot of things for us. Right, right. Yeah, what about you guys, Chad? Um, I think for us, there may be some opportunities to, to uh, invest in, in technology, uh, perhaps keep a certain portion aside for, uh, for rentals. Um, you know, we're not, we're not the organization who is responsible for retrofitting, uh, retrofitting any given venue with that, with that equipment. Um, uh, so I think a lot of it, you know, our first, my first priority is to, um, reinstate the, the health of our organization pre-pandemic, um, and a lot of that has to do with bringing back, you know, uh, uh, and rebuilding our team uh, from an from an HR standpoint, uh, making sure that um, we're we have the 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 money to do that. Um, what we've seen, you know, we we really rely on about sixty percent, between fifty and sixty percent contributed revenue. Uh, to maintain operations for any given fiscal year. 
Um, and what we've seen is that the, the economic impact of our donors has obviously trickled down into what we're able to fundraise. And our, you know, whether or not we're able to um, reach our fundraising goal by the end of this fiscal year remains to be seen. Um, you know, we've, we've heard any number of, of stories and situations um, from, our, from our historically uh, consistent donor sources, of, uh, 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 revenue sources. Um, things have changed. Now that may be temporary, but I think a lot of, a good portion of this funding for performing arts organizations is going to be uh, supplementing that loss of revenue. Absolutely, right. And then we've already seen all of the independent venues that have closed. And so mm -hmm. of course the primary driver for the funding is to help all those independent venues keep their doors open, keep the lights on, you know, survive through this. And obviously that's gonna help a lot. But, um, you know, I, I, the conversations I have with my own artists about this, because as great as this funding is, it sadly doesn't go directly to the pockets of the, of the artists out there. So one of the things I'm talking to them about is, and it's, it's admittedly just kind of speculation, but, you know, suppose, this funding happens, ideally it would mean we would see a lot of fine arts organizations have the means to present new and unusual works that even under good times they might not be willing to take a risk on simply for economic reasons, you know. And so that's one thing that I hope we see is that once this all happens, that that money will be there to support a lot of stuff that never would have gotten to see the light of day had we not seen this funding. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that's something that happens. And I think we're all, I think the, the exciting thing is, and I sort of touched on this earlier, but, um, you know, we're all thinking outside the box here, uh, not because we're uh, creative, but because we have to. We have to come up with new ways of reaching our audience. We have to come up with new ways of, of supporting our industry, supporting the agents, supporting the artists, having those conversations about, you know, what can we do? What can we do together? But you're right, there is a risk there because this is all so new that smaller organizations, um, you know, without a, a, a major endowment, for instance, um, uh, may be less likely to take a chance on creating new content, which would, which would demand, rightfully so, a more significant artist fee uh, to, to pay that artist to create new content. Uh, they deserve that. Um, but until we as an organization are on better, uh, better footing, more solid footing, um, taking a risk like that um, is terrifying right now. Absolutely, because we still have no way of gauging the confidence of concert attendees in terms of exactly. their comfort level. Will they feel safe even if they get the vaccine? What will that mean for being with other people? There's still a lot of unknowns. Yeah, here you I think I think for smaller artists too, there's there's a legitimate concern that venues are going to just kind of what uh, Chad had said that uh, essentially 
there will be less when we are able to have new sh uh, live shows, less shows and less and less shows and less risky shows, and that typically translates as like more better known artists, and that excludes a huge chunk of what most venues would would usually have in their season um, mixed in with things. So that's kind of a concern, I think. And is Nicholas, uh, here's, here's, uh, here's a question for you, and I think. Um, I think you probably have a lot more experience with this than I do here, just because being in LA. But um, for me, one of the silver linings that I've heard from other presenters is that this has allowed them to uh, kind of shift their focus um, towards local artists uh, during this time and presenting local artists, which is something that a lot of presenting organizations would never do because we're always trying to find, you know, the biggest, baddest name on an international global scale uh, for that name recognition. Um, do you, are, have you been doing some of that? Yeah, already with, I mean, our first um, five or six episodes of the virtual series of which I think we have 14 done, but only like seven or so have premiered. Um, those were all local because they needed to be because we couldn't, do anything we were just kind of sheltering in place um and it's definitely opened my eyes and i know wendy's eyes and other i mean when we've always had a lot of local art I and mean, we have uh local groups that perform yearly at the at the luckman including uh rayford rogers modern ballet and a few others that were kind of their home for an annual presentation but what it has done is it's allowed us to sort of explore um, just in our backyard. You know, sometimes we, we always talk about this donut effect where we're not us necessarily, but everyone in general is like in the middle of this donut and we're trying to jump over the, the bread, if you will. And, but there's so much stuff within, within that um, that is so rich and there's, you know, just really in our neighborhood, there's a huge amount of, of exciting content that's um, there and I, and guilty of not having really noticed a lot of the things that I've discovered recently. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I think it will absolutely, you know, we, we, one of the venues that we have is called the Intimate Theater, which is about a 200 seat um, black box um, space that is a little hard to use sometimes because of just the economics of, of it it's you know it's difficult to to make sense so we typically use our larger venue which is about 1200 seats um, but the this has made us think of new and exciting ways that we can activate that space on a more consistent level using um, uh, local artists to um, you know I don't it, it's just opened up a lot of different uh, Converse, or started a lot of conversations um, about ways to engage um, the community from within the community, which is kind of the opposite of, not the opposite, but it's, we typically, like you said, we bring in, oh, we're bringing in this blah, blah, blah ballet from, from Kazakhstan. And it's, you know, there's obviously, there's like excitement to that um, because, you know, it, it's just how human nature is, I think, to get excited about something coming from somewhere far away. Um, but there is a lot of, I mean, I mean, there are venues in Kazakhstan where are probably bringing these local artists from LA to there. So you know what I'm saying? Like there's this, there's this uh, wealth of, of culture and, and exciting things that are happening in all of our neighborhoods that we've definitely, um, 
noticed recently more so than ever, I think. Yeah. Um, we've covered a lot in the last almost hour now. So I wanna, before we wrap things up, I just wanna, I wanna thank you guys again for your time, but I wanna ask either of you if there's anything we haven't really covered on these topics that's worth mentioning that people listening might benefit from, or if there's any other food for thought that you wanna put out there before we wrap this up. My one a recommendation to anyone that is uh, working in presenting, uh, which I learned very early on is like, uh, start conversations with agents that you would that you think you normally wouldn't have. I think some of the most beautiful things that have grown from, uh, in terms of content have been from very, very, very um, kind of back and forth, really texting agents, like as if they're, you know, close, very close friends, that they, now they are. Um, and that sort of back and forth because they know what's possible on their end. I know what's possible on my end. And it's just sort of fast-tracked all of these things. We're all looking, I mean, they're just early on, we're just as, you know, how are we gonna do this as we were? So that was um, a new thing uh, for us, just sort of throwing everything, you know, the formal offer letter sort of uh, method out the window and saying, okay, listen, we're, we need to figure this out right, right now. Let's think of ideas. What do you have? What like, uh, you know, send me all these things that you have and let's see if our editing guy can put it together in a way. All this back and forth. It's been really, really nice to, uh, to work uh, that way with them because it's been mutually beneficial and it's strengthened our relationship with a lot of agents. Yeah, we're definitely in the relationship business. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Chad? Any uh, final thoughts? Um, I guess don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to try something new, and and that's sort of what Nicholas is saying. I think with with new conversations with agents and artists that you wouldn't normally look at. But um, you know, I think um, early on in this, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself uh, to come up with some brilliant solution to uh, to the world's problems in the presenting field, um, and I think. There are a lot of people that I've spoken to over the last nine months that uh, that were doing the same thing. We were all like scrambling, even you know, um, even you know the 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 titans of our industry, if you will, the people that have been doing this for thirty years uh, that we all historically have looked up to as mentors. Um, were scratching their heads, going, "We we don't know what." The answer is yeah. we don't know how to do this. We've never done this before. We've never been faced with this challenge, this magnitude of challenges before. Um, so I think it's um, for me. It's taken me several months to give myself uh, give myself the room to try something new and not be afraid of failing. Because if I fail, it's not my fault. Um, there, there's no you know. Going back to, again, and I hate I hate the fact that I'm now saying this twice in an hour, but there's no playbook for this, you know. So we're all creating this, we're all creating something new every single day, um, yeah. and while that's exciting, it's incredibly stressful, it's incredibly emotional. So I guess you know, if if you're asking me for a piece of advice, uh, it would be take care of yourself, like take care of your of your your mind and your heart and your soul and, and give yourself, uh, uh, you know, forgive yourself during this time because um, there's no right or wrong way to do this. Nothing that Nicholas and I have said is, 
particularly profound in any way. And, and I'm definitely not um, an expert on any of these topics by any means, um, but we're all trying and we're all just doing the best that we can right now. For sure, yeah, yeah I'm glad you touched on that. You, you really have to give yourself permission to step back and acknowledge, are you lucky enough that your health hasn't been affected by this? You know, um, and and kind of, you know, 24 hours at a time and not think, especially like you said, from the onset that within two weeks, you're going to have the solution that the industry needs. And I've had a lot of conversations with other people on all sides of the table in this chat who have said the same thing. And, you know, but I also think that's sort of a, it's a testament to the, you know, the resilience of our industry that it's, it's always even during good times, it's always a hard thing. And the sheer passion for the arts uh, are going to get us through this. And that, that desire for that live art and that live performance is so strong that we've seen people come together who never would have come together. Um, by way of example, in March, um, there's an organization I'm in now called the National Independent Talent Organization, which is kind of in tandem with the National Independent Venue Association and my organization, NIDO, um, you know, we have bi-weekly calls with, with probably 150 or more now um, other independent agencies that for the most part, since I've been doing this, you know, you're cordial when you see each other at conferences, but you know, it's very, it's very competitive. So the fact that this has brought us together, literally brought us together and I've befriended people who I've only known from across the hall previously at conferences has actually been a really wonderful thing. And that never would have happened um, without, without people um, having that desire to not just take care of themselves, but also take care of each other and, and figure out a way to get through this. So there's definitely been some silver linings for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, on that note, uh, I'm, I'm good if you guys are good. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really good to talk to you guys, to um, see you and meet you both virtually. I hope your holidays are good and uh, you know, let's stay safe and hope that this uh, Save Our Stages Act officially passes before December 31st. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Take care. Bye -bye.